Mortimer, episode 19. Thank you for tuning into Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Mortimer is an entire novel that you may decide to read in print or digital form. Yet each episode of this audio podcast is broken up into a serial of sorts for your enjoyment. We hope you enjoy this duty-free audio presentation of Mortimer. Oh, Leopold, don't you think listening to these serial radio dramas is romantic? I wish I could use your behavioral tactics on Lily Luta. Have her stay at home and listen to the radio instead of gallivanting all over town. Perhaps we should investigate to see if Mortimer is in fact aboard the Longhorn ship to Africa, suggested Mrs. Peabody as she poured another cup of tea. The Longhorns had left an hour ago with the eldest Mrs. Longhorn in tow. The scene had been rather unsavoury for such a refined family. Mrs. Longhorn standing in the foyer wailing about her forsaken daughter while her husband had stormed up the stair to yank his mother away from John Adams. The three of them then shuffled out the front door in a flurry of chaos and expletives. Mrs. Peabody clicked her tongue as she settled down next to her friend in the sitting room. "'Quite prudent of you, Felinda. While our Mortimer is quite industrious, his commitment to such a voyage was not clearly ascertained before the morning.' I'll send Neville to the dock to make an inquiry. Mrs. Dixon felt something jabbing into her hip, and she jammed her hand down between her ample buttocks and the chair cushion. Much to her rancor, her hand clasped around a cool, tapered glass. She pulled the bottle out from beneath the seat cushion. She took a sniff and coughed. He does love ships, Mrs. Peabody was saying. I'm sure he's on board. He loves building bottle boat ships and looking at the Esquire. "'Craftsmanship is a very admirable quality in a man,' Mrs. Peabody was determined to be optimistic. "'I'm sure he was thrilled that his uncle gave him opportunity to sail the open sea. "'He owns half of the Armada. "'He could sail a different ship of his possession every day of the week for the next twenty years. "'I hardly doubt he realises that.' Neville walked into the room carrying a telegram. "'He promptly handed it to Mrs. Dixon. "'This just arrived from New York City.' Mrs. Dixon grit her teeth, but she did not argue. She placed the bottle on the ground next to her chair and accepted the telegram. Neville, please go down to Longhorn's Harbour and ask the boy at the dock if he saw Mortimer board the ship to Africa this morning. I was quite looking forward to completing the other task you assigned to me this morning. The table can wait until you return. Mrs. Dixon flipped the card over in her hand and inspected the fine paper. Please go to the dock and make an inquiry, will you? Mrs. Peabody nodded to Mrs. Dixon curiously. "'What does it say?' Mrs. Dixon broke open the familiar wax seal. "'It's from the Centennial,' she read the note aloud. "'Dear Mrs. Dixon, "'I have reason to believe there are pernicious dealings afoot. "'I shall not divulge the intricacies. "'However, I must speak with Mr. Mortimer Ascariat to the suite. "'I am writing you respectfully as the manager of the Ascariat Manor, 
to notify the manor that I shall be coming to Georgetown in one week by the date of your having received this telegram. Regards, Sir Herberger Wolfenstein. Pernicious dealings? Mrs. Peabody looked genuinely confused, but before Mrs. Dixon could clarify, a figure appeared in the doorway. "'Han y'all seen my boy round the house yet this morning?' Neville turned to look over his shoulder. Mr. Binkley stood at the entry of the breakfast lounge, wearing a stained pair of khaki overalls. He did not have a shirt on underneath and looked absolutely philistine. His distinct aroma of faeces drifted about the room. "'Excuse me?' Mrs. Dixon hid the telegram behind her. Neville put his kerchief to his moustache. "'I'll head to the docks now.' Well, Mr. Binkley shrugged as the butler slipped quickly past him and out of the front door. Bobby and I figured he was either sleeping or maybe romping around with some lady friend he met at the party. But he usually is returning up for some vittles by now. Vittles? Mrs. Peabody was confused. Percy is missing? Mrs. Dixon felt panic building in her chest. First Mortimer, then Lily Lou, and now Percy. Don't tell Bobby that he ain't back, though. That'd be useless as tits on a bull. What? Jeb grinned at Mrs. Dixon. You know how Bobby worries. I'm sure Percy's around here somewhere. I just reckon we ought to find him. Oh, indeed, I will call the police. Nah, no sense in that. Jeb shook his head. You got an ass I could borrow? Take a ride? An ass? He means a horse or donkey, Felinda. Mrs. Dixon gestured toward the barn. Yes, Millie is at the stable now. If you go down there, she can help you saddle an animal to ride. That's mighty nice, Jeb grinned. Thank you, Mrs. Dixon. You're mighty fine for a coloured woman. If I weren't married to Bobby, well, I'd be sweet-talking you into my bed. Mrs. Dixon wasn't sure if she should be horrified or flattered. Instead, she turned her back on Jeb, and facing Mrs. Peabody, she changed the subject. Oh, uh, Philinda, uh, while Mr. Plinkley is riding the groan searching for Percy, um, we should do another sweep of the house. You know, in case there are other missing persons hiding in the wing somewhere. Do you believe there are? Well, two lovers in the bathtub, Mortimer, Percy, Lily Lou missing. Mrs. Longhorn in John Adams' room? Well, I'm afraid we must be prudent. "'Where is John?' Mrs. Peabody gathered the teacups and stood. "'I haven't seen him since Mr. Longhorn punched him in the face an hour ago.' "'Oh, I don't know.' Mrs. Dixon picked up the glass bottle that she'd found crammed beneath the cushion of her chair. "'If he knows what's good for him, he'd be on the first train back to the city.' "'But why?' "'Felinda, didn't you notice that things got a little out of hand last evening?' Well, indeed I did, but I never seen such an uncouth behaviour. That's because you're a dear, sweet, respectable woman. Mrs. Dixon placed a loving hand on Felinda's cheek. I believe that I have learned the cause of our collective guests' insanity, and if word were to get out, our reputation would be ruined. Oh, no! Hands trembling, Mrs. Peabody fumbled the china cups. Yes, Mrs. Dixon held the bottle out. "'Smell this.' Obediently, Mrs. Peabody put her nose to the glass and inhaled. She launched into a series of hacks and coughs, and one of the teacups went flying and crashed into the floor. Mrs. Peabody coughed again. "'What is that? Rum?' Mrs. Dixon went to work, cleaning up the pieces of shattered porcelain. "'What?' "'Someone spiked a punch.' 
Mrs. Peabody dropped to her knees and joined her friend in cleaning up the mess. Oh, I'm clumsy. Forgive me. Don't worry. We have hundreds of teacups, even after Percy and Mortimer's training. Mrs. Dixon swept the pieces into her apron. How did no one know about the rum? Oh, I'm sure many did. But for the others, perhaps your punch was so delicious and flavorful that they could not taste the alcohol when it was added. Oh, no! Mrs. Peabody was angry that her family recipe had been corrupted. Who would do such a thing? I have my suspicions. Regardless, we mustn't tell anyone. Mrs. Dixon averted her gaze. We need to search for the other bottles and hide the evidence. Do you think John did it? Who else knows the location of the key to the wine cellar? Well, besides the staff and family, no one. And you did see him snooping around last night in the kitchen. Oh, yes, Mrs. Peabody affirmed. But, but why would he be looking for liquor in the safe? I don't know, but I do know that he was acting strangely last night. He was also clearly drunk. Mrs. Dixon turned on a heel and stormed out the door and down the hall to the kitchen, Mrs. Peabody in tow. I'm sure he is the culprit. Oh, the next time we meet, I intend to give him a piece of my mind. What's your name? Mortimer had been tied to a rickety wooden chair that was half the size of his massive hindquarters. Three unkempt men were interrogating him in the galley of the ship. It's captain to you, you ingrates, belched Mortimer. He'd vomited enough to fulfill his lifetime quota, and he felt his stomach lurch in protest to the continuous rocking of the boat. I think he's going to yak again, said the cyclops they called Sid. He adjusted the patch over his eye nervously and took a step away from Mortimer. Get in the bucket, demanded the larger one. Kalik obediently grabbed the wooden bucket and thrust it into Mortimer's lap. I command you to... <coughs> Mortimer heaved into the bucket. I demand my custard. <laughs> if you're a captain, oh, you're the worst one I've ever laid eyes on, laughed Sid as Mortimer belched again. Be reasonable. You don't be a one us to call a captain, added Cowlick. You see here, Mortimer said, trying to keep his head from reeling. I command you to get me a change of clothes, for these are highly improper for a Sunday. He cleared his throat and reminded himself that he was in the presence of a most esteemed lady. While she did seem to be acting very strangely, tossing and turning so violently, Mortimer knew that he must pull himself together. His nanny had always taught him the importance of presence, and Mortimer truly believed a change of clothes would cure him of this ailment straight away. He narrowed his eyes at the surprised look of his companions. After you have dressed me, I demand you dock so I may disembark. I shall not tarry with pirates. Pirates? Dress you? The large one hulked over Mortimer. We ain't docking anywhere. And we ain't no pirates, neither. Ho, oh, ho, I shut your mouth, Captain Vomit. You don't want to anger Kilgrew, suggested Sid. Ridiculous, Mortimer spit onto the floor, for his mouth tasted truly vile. You shall regard me with respect as your captain. I demand you duck this instant. We're in the middle of the Atlantic. I shall tell my nanny of your obstinacy, and she shall make you regret your transgressions against virtue and dignity. 
I've had enough of your bilge. The large man they call Kilgrew growled. He cracked his knuckles and took a step toward Mortimer. Don't you touch my lapel again! What are ye gonna do with him? Cowlick wanted to know. Fifty lashings, Sid suggested. Let me have him! Oh, begged Cowlick. I'll cut his tongue out and feed it to the sharks! Mortimer's tongue trembled in his sour-tasting mouth as Cowlick looked upon him with excitement. Mortimer imagined the brutish ingrate was fantasising about all the nasty forms of torture that he could inflict upon Mortimer's delicate frame. No, Killigrew's upper lip curled. This rapscallion kraken will be our galley slave. His companions laughed like hyenas. Mortimer glared incredulously at his captors. You'll start by mopping the floors. Mop the floors? Mortimer's moustache bristled with umbrage. That is work for Mrs. Peabody. You got that wrong, Captain Vomit, hissed Cowlick. Moppin' be work for stowaways that want to keep their tongues. Why, thank you, Miss Loretta Young. I'm quite flattered by your proposal, but you see, I've already been asked by Claudette Colbert for marriage. John bowed at the famous actress as his eyes welled up. Oh, do not cry, my pretty pet. Perhaps you might be interested in my nephew, Mortimer Ascariot. Mortimer Ascariot is one of the largest ignoramuses to ever have walked this planet, the beautiful woman cried in outrage. Oh, you are quite right. I do fear that he is the key travesty of the family tree. John puffed on a Cuban cigar and tilted his head arrogantly. However, I do believe that his asylum shall treat him well all the days of his life. Oh, John, you're such a good Samaritan. She draped herself on his arm, a perfume wafting up into his nostrils. Darling, do be careful. This suit cost more than the entire fortune of Andrew Carnegie. She gasped with admiration. President Iscariot. An onyx-faced man appeared in the doorway. Your adoring fans await your speech. Of course. Um, can you tell me, are there any important people in the audience? John straightened his bow tie as the butler nodded smartly. Everyone who matters is here, of course, he said. John D. Rockefeller, Charles Spencer Chaplin, and Coco Chanel. I could go on. Now we do not want to keep my guests waiting. John took one last puff. The floor lurched violently. What on earth was that? It is an earthquake. Miss Young was at John's side again. Don't leave me, baby. I love you. I need you. She began to kiss his neck. The floor shook again. An earthquake in New York City? John stubbed out his cigar and looked around in alarm. It's ridiculous. I'm afraid the ceiling is caving in, sir. The man's voice sounded muddled. What? This can't be happening, John cried out. I have to make my speech. He shook the woman off his arm and tried to run, but his legs were heavy as lead. He could only move as fast as a snail, and indeed, his butler was correct. John looked about as bricks, dust, and panelling began to fall and crash around him. No! John yelled into the abyss. I have to make my speech. I will be admired. No! John shot up in the train seat and smacked his head into the bunk of the bed above him. What's going on, man? 
His sleeping car companion poked his head down over the bunk bed railing and glared into the darkness at John. What's all the yelling about? John sat up and put his feet on the floor of the train car. Nothing. He sat rubbing his aching head. It was a dream. A dream of the future, John told himself. John reached for his silk robe and the tin of cigarettes that he'd received from Jeb at the party the evening prior. He needed a stiff drink, but since his flask was empty and alcohol was no longer sold on the train, he'd have to make do with coffee. He left the sleeping car that he was sharing with a stranger from some place he hadn't heard of called Montana. He lit a cigarette and staggered down the walkway toward the food car. He felt a flutter in his stomach as he remembered the smell of Miss Young's hair. It was all so vivid, it had to be a foretaste of what was to come. Miss Young was a thousand times more attractive than any other lady he'd been with. As he let his mind wander, John was reminded of the activities of that morning. While John didn't have a clue how Mrs. Longhorn had ended up in his room, or what had transpired that evening, there were two things of which he was certain. He'd been intimate with the old baroness while drunk and second, in the morning, while sober, she was much rowdier than any of the ladies of the night that he frequented on 50th Street. John shuddered and took a drag of good old tobacco, attempting to burn the memory out of his being. He arrived at the food car and settled himself down at an old plastic table. The car was deserted, except for a man washing glasses at the bar. "'Can I get you anything?' "'Coffee, black.' The man picked up a coffee pot and a white ceramic mug. He came to John's side and poured a cup. Whispering by Paul Whiteman played on the radio in the background. What's got you up at this hour? Planning my next move, John flicked ash into the glass tray. I have a lot going on in my mind. How much longer till we get to the city? Eight hours. John was not pleased that the waiter was more interested in washing glasses than making small talk. He cleared his throat and sat back in his seat casually. You into politics? What? You know, government, policies and what not? Well, the government has all but eliminated my salary by not letting me sell booze on the train no more. <laughs> oh, I used to make a decent living, but now I'm barely scraping by. John nodded in solicitude. That'll be one of the first things I'll change. The man narrowed his eyes at John. You'll change? Oh, <laughs> did I not introduce myself? John put on his most charming grin. I am John Adams Iscariot. Is that supposed to mean something to me? John bristled in his seat. The outrage. Have you heard of President John Adams? You him? The man was being sarcastic and John didn't like it one bit. I was named after him. Well, good for you. Have you heard of the Centennial Shipping Line? Well, who hasn't? Having finished washing glasses, the waiter now went to work on the bar top. Well, John puffed again. I own it. Oh, and how does that qualify you to change government policy? John was annoyed. He'd figured this fellow for a halfwit. John was used to dealing with feeble-minded staff aboard trains. This particular individual was far less amusing than the others. It is very likely that I'm going to be the next president. John thought it'd be more effective to just spell it out for the idiot. President of what? The United States, John grit his teeth. You running for office? It's complicated, John shrugged, getting my ducks in a row. Well, if you do something about prohibition, I hope you win. My shift is over. Will you require anything else? No. John pulled out his wallet and flipped a coin toward the man who caught it in the air. Keep the change. 
The man rolled his eyes and left the food car, leaving John alone to ponder his next move. Well, Orange, looks like you were onto something with this Morris Jones fella. The sergeant turned the page over in the report that Orange had been laboriously writing since dawn. Orange's fingertips tingled and he blinked twice in surprise. Yes, yes, sir. His boss looked up. Orange, you haven't taken a breath since you sat down in here. I don't want you passing out in my office. Sir, yes, yes, sir. The young officer inhaled deeply. Now, isn't that better? Y yes, sir. The chief of police pushed back in his wooden chair and stood up, report in hand. I'm still going to have to fire you. Orange felt like he'd been punched straight in the gut. But, but, listen to me, the man crowed. While the arrest of Morris was sound, the reason for the arrest was completely missed by you. But he was driving recklessly, resisted arrest, stole... I read your report. Orange shrimped back in his seat at the outburst. The sergeant began to pace back and forth in front of the office window. More importantly, while you were gallivanting around chasing ice cream thieves who, and I quote, were driving recklessly, two people went missing. Missing, sir? Orange had stopped breathing again. Missing. The reports came in first thing this morning. The retired army officer picked up another report and thrust it at Orange. This morning, Miss Lily Lou Longhorn was reported missing. She was last seen at the Iscariot residence last evening around 10, where, according to your report, you stopped by. However, Due to your fixation on ice cream, you did not even notice that there was an illicit party going on involving truancy, alcohol, and likely drugs. Oh, God, Orange murmured, scanning the report. I would like to remind you that Mr. Longhorn is one of the most influential people on the continent, and he is very upset that his only daughter is missing. The sergeant slammed Orange's report on the desk. And then... Two hours later, this morning, another of the most influential houses in the country called in a missing person. Can you guess who that might be? The orange swallowed hard. The, the, the president? The Iscariots, screamed the enraged police officer. We have a suspected double kidnapping on our hands. Oh, God! He thought he might be sick. I gave you one chance to redeem yourself for your shot job with the Jumbelina case, the mess you made with the interrogation and allowing a nun to be assaulted. But this takes the cake, Orange. But, but, I've assigned Skip to Carter's team. Go into the bullpen and pack your things. If you go quietly, I'll allow you two weeks severance pay. Orange stood up begrudgingly. How would he tell his wife? They were newly married and she'd been longing to begin their life together and a family. How could they do that if he was unemployed? I'll pack my desk. He walked with lead-like feet toward the door. But there was one question burned in his thoughts. He turned around bravely. May I ask a question, sir? The chief did not look up from his paperwork. What's that? What was the better reason for arresting Morris? There came a frustrated sigh. Then the sergeant met his gaze. Morris was transporting and holding a fugitive, who you did not arrest and has since probably fled toward the state line. A, a, a fugitive? Orange racked his mind for a memory of someone besides Morris being in the ice cream truck. 
A Miss Matilda Hornwasher, otherwise known as MH1253. The sergeant did not bother to look at the young man as he spoke. She goes by the name of Sissy. Been staying with Morris for the past six months. She was apprehended two years ago on grounds of suspected murder. But murder They found her escape to Philadelphia, were shipping her to the penitentiary out west, and she disappeared. She came back to Georgetown, as I suspected she would, and you let her get away. Oh, wow. Now, get out of here. I have work to do. With a quick nod, Orange scurried to the door and left the office. He kept his head low as he made the walk of shame back to his now former desk. Sorry to see you leave, came a voice to the side. It was Miss Lint, the front desk secretary. She held out a moderately sized box. For your things. Thanks. Orange accepted the box with a half smile. If it's not an imposition. What? The young woman shrugged. What are you going to do now? Orange straightened his shoulders, determination building in his chest. He wasn't going to go down passively. He'd worked hard to get through school, interviewing in a multiple of precincts around the southeast coast, staying up late studying cases, making speeches, practicing his newly learned interrogation skills on his willing but helpful wife. He'd memorized all of Carter's stupid scenarios, and he'd worked hard. He wasn't going to back down. He met the secretary's eyes. I'm going to find a felon. My mistress, I had no idea that you were so dirty inside. Mortimer dunked his mop back into the brackish water. The boat responded by groaning, a sound that had become particularly soothing to Mortimer during the past two days at sea. While the acute bouts of nausea had diminished, he still was not skilled at maintaining his balance during the ever-so-frequent fits of rocking that her mistress engaged in from time to time. He felt like her moans and groans offered a sort of solidarity to the many surprises that befell those destined for seafaring. She chose this moment now to toss Mortimer across the kitchen and into a counter, upon which were stacks of dirty pans. <clears throat> Mortimer cried as the pans crashed to the floor. Now look what you did, you mischievous flirt! He looked at the mess around him fearfully, for he knew that the illiterate chap that they called Kilgrew possessed a rather surly temper, and the galley was due to be cleaned hours ago. Mortimer was quite capable of cleaning, but he'd decided long ago that it was rather beneath a captain to be scrubbing the inside of a ship. Mortimer had been raised with the privilege of the upper class. He'd been well taken care of by his servants and had essentially never been plagued with responsibility. He was free to build his bottle boats and wander to wherever his whimsy took him. Life had been just the way he liked it. Upon being captured by a band of marauders, he'd been relegated to the work of a simpleton. No, not a simpleton, a lowly campesino, which, of course, to Mortimer, was even lower than a regular low-life rustic. His nanny had taught him that those in the southern continent were even more impoverished than the poorest of Georgetown. While this knowledge fueled his commitment to obstinacy, the unpleasant truth of Kilgrew's wrath burned brightly in Mortimer's memory. In the last two days, Mortimer had learned that when he was compliant, he was rewarded with food, if you could call it that, and when he was obdurate, he went to sleep hungry. The growl in his stomach compelled Mortimer to action. He squatted down and began to retrieve the pans that he'd knocked over only moments ago. 
One plus to his imprisonment aboard the Esquire, Mortimer decided, was the wardrobe he was given. While he was not adorned in his typical suit, cravat and bow-tie with Oxford-capped shoes, the alternative was rather compelling. Mortimer's pants were baggy and offered quite a bit of ventilation about his pelvis. Additionally, because of the roominess of his breeches, there was also a very slim chance that he would tear the bottoms open when bending and twisting. This tailored rarity allowed room to wiggle and stretch, which Mortimer found himself doing at least every fifteen minutes for good health and virility. Furthermore, as opposed to the standard men's pants that Mortimer had been afflicted with during the entirety of his life up to this point, these pants were tapered at the ankles. The ergonomics of this design offered quite a necessary amount of protection from dirt or vermin that might try to clandestinely wriggle up his legs. While the reality of the subordinate position Mortimer had been relegated to was shown as a beacon to the continued injustice that compelled Mortimer to revolt, it had also successfully deterred Mortimer from making any real effort at following through on his assigned directive. Suddenly, at that moment, Mortimer came to a rather staggering realisation. He shot up, his eyes wide as he looked about him. He was inside her mistress. He was scrubbing clean the lady herself. This was a role to be undertaken with honour. Fortune had smiled upon him indeed, to be bestowed with such a tremendous task. The knowledge of this provoked Mortimer's moustache to quiver. Upon contemplating these things, Mortimer felt himself a bit cheered. He held the mop out before him, began to hum a low baritone melody, and completed an awkward pirouette. About half an hour later, Kilgrew came down the stairs to the ship's kitchen beneath the deck to find his captive humming and dancing with a broom. "'And I to you!' Mortimer bowed. "'To be within your bounty stirs me to my very core!' "'What are ye doing?' Kilgrew stormed toward him. "'Ye skirt-wearing ballast pig!' Mortimer shot a look over his shoulder and yelped before dashing down the galley floor. "'No, you don't!' Killigrew yanked Mortimer's collar and forced him to turn around. "'Keep your unsanitary paws off me!' came the self-righteous protest. "'What do ye be doing, dancing like a lady? Get to work!' There was a commotion at the stairs, and Cowlick appeared with Sid in tow. "'The captain wants to see ye!' announced Cowlick. "'I'm busy,' growled Kilgrew, but he released his grasp on his galley slave's collar. Don't ye be getting any ideas in your head that insubordination is taken lightly. Let her happen again, and he'll swim with the fushes. Your lack of respect for the English language is staggering. This caused the two on the stairs to snicker. Kilgrew whirled around, forgetting his original target. What are you two lice-infested monkeys laughing at? Well, you have to admit it, Kill. <laughs> he be a funny bastard, replied Sid. Kilgrew bared his teeth and stared toward the stairs, but before ascending, he whirled around to face the self-proclaimed captain. There'll be no grub for ye till this galley shines brighter than a full moon. Learn more at www.mortimabook.com Copyright 2022 M.W. Cedars Written by M.W. Cedars, the author pseudonym, audiobook performance by Michael Drew. 
Neither this author nor affiliates, comrades, patriots, or associates are engaged in rendering professional or non-professional advice, services, recommendations, or any other suggestions of any kind to the individual reader. This book is purely fiction, and all opinions and all likenesses of characters, industries, cities, or associations with any place or anyone you know are purely coincidental. Thank you for subscribing to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Be sure to download the next episode.